Hi, my name is Ben Charo, and I graduated from Swarthmore last May. Recently, I've been listening to a podcast called Heavyweight. During each episode, host Jonathan Goldstein serves as a catalyst for the exploration of a regret or lingering unanswered question that's bothered him or bothered somebody he knows. In one episode, he finds a suitcase filled with handwritten love letters from the 1990s and decides to track down the couple who wrote them to see what's become of their relationship. In another, he gets a friend to honor his father's last wishes by helping to scatter his ashes on the 18th hole of a golf course, a task his friend has been hung up on completing for 16 years. To some extent, I think this podcast, the one you're listening to right now, was also born out of regret. During my senior year at Swarthmore, I started working with War News Radio, or WNR, about a series about the social consequences of coral reef decline, a topic I care deeply about. The show, at least as I imagined it, was to focus on coral scientists and communities that depend on reefs for all types of resources. I was curious how scientists were dealing with the death of an ecosystem they loved and how those most intimately involved with the reef were coping with its decay. I got the idea for the show from a fellowship application I was writing at the time, which focused on the exact same topics. I'd never hosted a podcast before, but I remember being excited by the thought. It was a new thing to try during a year of last hurrahs, and I like the idea of actually finding answers to my questions, rather than waiting for a response from the fellowship. That was in September of 2017. And, for a while, things looked like they were on some kind of track to completion. We interviewed Scott Heron, a scientist responsible for coral bleaching prediction at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. Then we spoke with Zach Rago, the main character in Chasing Coral, a documentary about coral bleaching that received massive attention and has since become many marine scientists' favorite film. After those interviews, though, things stalled. I could blame the tortuous biochemistry class I endured, or the unique and remarkably potent marriage of the flu and pneumonia I caught during early second semester. But ultimately, I think the number one reason why I never actually finished the podcast was my uncertainty of what I wanted it to be. I had a story in mind, but it didn't feel complete with the interviews I had. People told me one interview could often provide enough material for a full episode at WNR. But I wanted to aim high. How many episodes of Serial or S-Town or In the Dark have only one interview? I've since realized that I should have been thinking more along the lines of fresh air. Despite a half-hearted final push to write up a script, I knew things were over when senior week arrived, which reduced most days to nursing a hangover and preparation for the next evening's drinking. Graduation was around the corner, and it was time to let go of things far more important than my podcast. Plus, despite the odds, I'd actually gotten that fellowship I'd applied for, and come July, I'd be flying to Australia to ask my questions in person. In the hectic summer of trips to REI and goodbyes to friends that followed, I didn't think much about my nascent radio career. After I'd been in Australia for a bit, though, I thought about that podcast a fair amount, at least in a back-of-the-mind kind of way. It felt like a big missed opportunity, seeing those interviews unused, sitting in a dusty back corner of my computer files. I thought about how amazing it had felt to talk with Scott and Zach, and how they'd expected me to get their words out to the public. Plus, Scott works in the same building where my temporary office is, which didn't make things any easier to forget. Enter Catherine Kwok, a WNR aficionado who tried to help me push the podcast over the finish line before we graduated last spring. Were this an episode of Heavyweight, she would be my Jonathan Goldstein. Apparently, she shared my regret, 
and, despite my exceedingly spotty track record, was willing to try and finish the thing once and for all. Eager to do the same, I accepted, and, miraculously, more than a year later, here we are. From Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is... This is... This is... This is War News Radio. Hi. Thanks for tuning in to War News Radio. I'm your host, Ben Charo. And I'm Catherine Clark. Coral reefs represent some of the most biologically diverse marine ecosystems on the planet. They are also one of the most visible indicators of climate change in the natural world. Global warming has caused sea temperatures to rise, which puts coral reefs under a lot of pressure. In work that I've done over the, the past decade and more, I've, I've looked at things like what have been the temperature signals that we've seen uh, globally and specifically for coral reef. Uh, areas. And it's very clear. The data, there's, there's no hesitation and there's no complication in the data set. Temperatures have been increasing in terms of a global sense uh, and increasing in un unprecedented ways. If you look at coral reef locations, a study that we undertook looked and said that, you know, for over 90%, in fact, 97%, 98% of coral reef locations around the world, temperatures have been increasing in these locations. That was Dr. Scott Heron, a physical scientist working at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Warming waters are a problem for all kinds of reasons. They change fish distributions so that fishermen have to follow their stocks further and further from where they ought to be. They alter ocean currents, which can determine how nutrients flow from one place to another. For corals, the main issue with high temperatures is bleaching. Well, we've just come out of a 36-month period of the third observed and recorded global coral bleaching event, where we saw bleaching level stress happening on about two-thirds of reef locations around the world. More than half had two of those events during the three-year period. In some places, we're seeing a fifth year in a row where bleaching has been observed. Coral bleaching happens when the photosynthetic algae living inside corals are expelled. That's when you see coral reefs turning white. And these corals aren't immediately killed when the coral bleaching happens, but the chances of death are high. Without their algae, these corals lack a critical food source and they starve unless temperatures return to normal. And that's not just a problem for the corals themselves. When it comes to fish, that's obviously uh... You know, it's part of the part of the consequence. The coral reefs supply 25% of all marine life with habitat at some point during their life cycle. If we were to completely break down that system, you're also breaking down the ability for 25% of the ocean to, um, you know, live their life in a in a normal functional manner. Uh, and then that obviously has um, repercussions all the way up the food chain, particularly onto people. And when we look at Southeast Asia communities that rely almost purely on these ecosystems for protein or for their economic value to put a house over their head, uh, that's when you can get into some pretty, pretty frightening scenarios in the really not too distant future where 
removing this ecosystem or seeing it collapse could have devastating effects both economically but from a humanitarian standpoint um, in that region of the world. That was Zach Rago, a film technician who was a part of a documentary called Chasing Coral. Chasing Coral probably represents one of the most prominent pieces of media about coral reef decline in recent years. But of course, even if you haven't seen the film yet, if you've listened to the radio, turned on your nightly broadcast, or wherever you get your news, you've probably heard of this at one point or another. Exclusive footage of the Great Barrier Reef shows what could be the most severe and extensive coral bleaching on record. Researchers say they were horrified when they discovered that for the first time, mass bleaching had affected the Great Barrier Reef in consecutive years. The Great Barrier Reef along the coast of Australia is considered one of the greatest natural wonders of the world. It actually consists of more than 2,900 smaller reefs and 900 islands and countless species of fish. But its health and its future are very much in doubt. What's missing is an attention to the people who witness, catalog, and study coral degradation. Usually, when reef scientists appear in the news, they are only given the screen time or air time to explain their main research findings. We don't really get to hear them talk about their experiences doing research, the challenges they face, or the passions motivating their work on a day-to-day -day basis. With that in mind, let's rewind. Hi, my name is Scott Heron. Uh, I'm a physical scientist and I work with NOAA's Coral Reef Watch program. We use satellite and uh, ocean model information to monitor and predict conditions in the ocean that specifically pertain to coral reef health. But Dr. Heron didn't start out as a coral reef expert. I studied as a physicist, my, my undergraduate and uh, my postgraduate work is all in, in physics, but despite having looked at nuclear physics and atomic physics and quantum physics and all of these really interesting things, they didn't make my heart beat fast. And the environmental physics, in contrast, did. When we asked him why he decided to do research on corals, he described his first time scuba diving. At the time, he'd just finished up his doctoral thesis in physics and wanted to do something to reward himself. Although he grew up living in the middle of the Great Barrier Reef, he had only gone snorkeling, but not scuba diving. The first thing that I love, being a person who lives on the surface of the Earth, we move in a two-dimensional space. Yes, there are bumps in the two-dimensional space, but we live in a two-dimensional space. It's a surface. When you get into the water, any water, you're in a three-dimensional space. You don't just go that way and this way, but you can also go up and down. And that is a wonderful experience. When you now have that experience, and when you're looking at a coral reef, it's this wonderful garden is the best way that I think I can describe it, where you have vertical structure and all sorts of animals that are swimming around. There's these wonderful colours of different fish, uh, colours of different corals, colours, just myriad colours, and there's a vibrant, colourful environment. It's a really thrilling place to be. And then you get to dive down. Um, whether you're snorkeling or whether you are on scuba, you get to dive down in and, and look and see things that you don't get to see just from above. 
and you feel as though you're a part of this garden, whether you're doing swim-throughs in, in gaps that are, enable that, um, or, or whether it's just being on the side of a stretch of reef that can span metres and metres uh, uh, up and down. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. The second reef expert voice you heard earlier belongs to Zach Rago. My name is uh, Zach Rago. Um, by training, I'm an evolutionary biologist and ecologist. Um, and nowadays, most of my work has to do with um, youth outreach and youth education, um, particularly kind of in the fields of STEM. So getting kids engaged and jazzed about science and what it means to be in the field, etc. Um, and really doing that right now with the Chasing Coral Impact campaign. Like Dr. Heron, Zach was also motivated to study corals by his experiences underwater. I think for me, what it's always been, you know, since I was a little kid, it's um, we're not supposed to be there. And part of what makes it so exhilarating is, you know, you're in this underwater world that most people don't even really realize exists. You're kind of on your own to a certain extent. You can't talk to anybody. Um, you are weightless. It's, um, it's like this perfect storm of just these kind of oddball feelings that you can't really get anywhere else other than underwater. And then beyond that, you have the aesthetic beauty of this ecosystem that's just second to none on the planet. So, I think the best word that I could use to describe it is just like, it's like a euphoric experience to spend time on a coral reef. Sometimes news headlines can create very black and white pictures of coral reef decline. At worst, some stories have even suggested the entire Great Barrier Reef is dead, which isn't the case. Dr. Heron and Zach confirm, things aren't as simple as they might appear, and that's an important source of hope for many scientists. I think my optimism is for the planet as a whole rather than reefs, but my, my optimism for reefs comes in the fact that these things are amazingly adapted at what they do um, you know they've been on this planet for hundreds of millions of years and um, they are incredibly good at taking opportunity where they have it um, so that I think that to me is where my hope stands is the fact that the reef is not black and white you know the, the media is going to tell you that Either the Great Barrier Reef is dead or that nothing's wrong. Um, you don't really tend to get anything in between, particularly in Australia. And that needs to change because there's so much variability. And you're talking about the Great Barrier Reef, the size of Italy. Um, the, the entire portion of that reef doesn't have to obey particular trends. There are places on the GBR that look like it's 1975, and, and that's what gives me hope because they're obviously resilient and they're obviously making it through these past stressors. Um, so if we can get our act together and you know start making the changes that are needed right now, or at least the, the steps forward, then corals will be around. For Dr. Heron, hope is a necessity. 
and it comes primarily from a faith that will find solutions because the alternative is unacceptable. I, I have to have hope, and there's a couple of reasons that I have to have hope. One, I trust in the goodness of humanity to be able to look and see that we need to work together to be able to work through this. And, and I trust in humanity to be able to step out and say, yeah, it might mean tightening my personal belt, but this is going to be of benefit to everyone. Um, I have to have hope because I have a young family. Mm-hmm. I have to, you know, I look at my kids and I think, I've got to do what I do well for the benefit of you guys. Um, and and so it's, you know, that's, that's a, a key part of the focus there. I do have faith in the technological capacity that we collectively have uh, to be able to change our, our energy usages, uh, change those, those industries that we're investing in as, as a global society. I do have faith in the potential for new technologies that will help us to wind back some of the impacts that, again, I have contributed to. I'm a part of I'm a part of the problem. I want to be more of the solution than my part of the problem has been, and that's what I work towards. And I have to have faith and hope in this happening because of the reliance upon coral reefs and other marine ecosystems that lots of people around the world whom I've never met have. Similar to Zach, Dr. Heron also places faith in corals' ability to adapt and cope in their warmer environments. I have to have hope that there might be some piece of uh, adaptive processes that will help the corals to survive through the projected increase in temperatures going into the future. So, so while it's not their fault the temperatures are getting hotter, they're doing their part to uh, be able to keep living through these events. And I've got to be able to hope. You might be wondering whether recent mass coral die-offs really suggest that we should have hope for adaptation. We wondered that too. I, I think that the corals are going to work that out, um, you know, within and of themselves. So, and, and then there's there's the unknowns. Is there something that we're just not taking into account that we haven't yet learned about how corals do their thing? Um, again, I'm not the biologist, so I can't speak to what the, the best definition of all of those biological pieces are. Um, but uh, are there things that we just haven't yet come to realize could happen? With that said, it can be difficult to imagine a future for reefs as we know them now, given the projections from recent studies. I'm a pessimist by nature. I've learned to have optimism where optimism is due. If you put corals in a corner, it's really hard to be optimistic. Um, that, that's just the fact of the matter. Um, however, we do, like I said before, have a window of opportunity to change. You know, hey, if we lose the majority of corals, that's okay. But if this is about the bigger picture, about a global ecosystem, about all the ecosystems down the line. Um, and if we can protect what we can right now, then nature will take care of herself. Scientists' personal views on the coral bleaching crisis predictably bleed into the way they discuss it with family, friends, and the public. Messaging and communication is a divisive issue for coral reef researchers. Strong disagreements exist on whether messages of optimism, pessimism, hope, or despair will be most effective. Many scientists strive to communicate data alone, 
from the perspective of science, science is about the data. So the place to come back to uh, is the data. And, and so we report what the data say. Um, that's an important thing to do. But at the same time, we have to report what the data say in a way that's going to attract attention and be heard by the listener. If everything was alarmist, that would not go well. If everything were too optimistic, it would also not go well for the communication because the communication of science informs public debate and public policy, um, whether that be around the water cooler or in the house of government. It's an important thing to, to walk that line well. Unfortunately, at the moment, that line is communicating a lot of alarm because we are in a season of global history where there's a lot of alarming things going on. And so does that mean that people are being too alarmist at this point in time? I, I think the answer to that is no. In a science perspective, we have to be appropriately alarming. And we need to not shy away from being too alarming when too alarming is the appropriate level. Having chatted with a wide range of Australian reef scientists over the last few months, I've also realized that seasoned scientists are afforded different messaging opportunities than younger ones. Often, it's only scientists that have reached the top of their field, who have very little to lose, that are able to speak freely and openly on a public stage such that their personal ideas and opinions can be interpreted directly. But most scientists don't have this freedom. At best, their work is communicated through media outlets, which superimpose their own interpretive spin and selective bias. All this to say that messaging in science isn't typically a high-fidelity affair. What a scientist may wish their audience hears is not necessarily what they will hear. So we've learned a bit about what coral scientists hope for the future of corals and how that sense of optimism or pessimism affects the way that they communicate with the public. But to wrap things up, what about their hopes for the future of the scientific community? The one thing that I really reflect upon is that in science, we tend to be very conservative. We, we do our, our study, we, we analyze a particular species and its responses and we evaluate that and then we want to extend upon that size and then we'll do two more species and we'll, we'll query that and then we'll, we'll run that, uh, look and examine, is there, a, is there a historical perspective using other data sets where we might have seen something like this in the past to see a, a field evidence rather than an experimental evidence and, and we want to look at that. I think if there's one thing that science could do, it is to um, still do good work, but potentially have a little more confidence in that which is done. We're in this critical time point where we need to take a few risks, um, you know, and that might mean transplanting some of those engineered corals or assisted corals out into specific locations on coral reefs, acknowledging that well, you know, there's a lot of times in human history where we've introduced something and it hasn't been a good introduction. Here, Dr. Heron is talking about repopulating the reefs with stronger, more resilient corals to help them survive, an idea many coral scientists are currently researching. However, he acknowledges the limitations to this approach as well. The Great Barrier Reef is a thousand and a half miles long. 
we can't repopulate every reef with a coral that's been grown in a laboratory. We need a laboratory that's a thousand and a half miles long to be able to do that. Um, so we, we've got to choose well where we're making those investments. I've lived in Townsville for 100 days now, doing research for my year-long fellowship. It's a beautiful place on the northeast coast of Australia. A river lined with mangroves flows through the city and into the sea close by. The trees are often alive with tropical birds during the day, and at night, flying foxes giggle and chatter as they argue over fruit in the trees. Yet despite all the wildlife, it feels quiet here. My fellowship mentor of the moment, social scientist Nadine Marshall, recently said to me that Townsville wasn't a place for tourists, but a place to live. And I think that sums things up well. Luckily for me, lots of the people who happen to live here are marine scientists. Townsville is a nexus of refocused scientific research. Here, you'll find the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences, the headquarters of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, and James Cook University, arguably the best place to study marine biology in the world. So while my project concerns both local communities and scientists, you can probably imagine which of those I'm focusing on right now. I've interviewed around 27 reef scientists and managers so far, and emailed many more. The conversations have been wide-ranging. Some have argued that in the context of a climate change-driven apocalypse, the loss of coral reefs will matter very little. Others' comments are more tempered, and reject what they believe are exaggerated fears. Nobody, however, believes that reefs will survive as they are. Everybody I've talked with has suggested coral reefs all over the world will soon look very different than they do now, though the exact future remains shrouded by uncertainty. Many find that crushingly sad. Three people I've talked with have cried. One is a wildlife ranger and mother. Her daughter learned to snorkel when she was three years old. She's six now, but in those intervening three years, 50% of the corals on the Great Barrier Reef have died. Her mother, who has spent her life on coral reefs, is rapidly losing the ability to share a foundational piece of her identity with her child. Yet if grief, loss, and fear feature prominently, so too do hope, optimism, and resilience. Despite dire predictions, many find encouragement in the places that are still beautiful. Others are bolstered by watching reefs make miraculous recoveries. That's the case for an island research station director whom I interviewed a few weeks ago. From 2014 to 2017, her scientific outpost was hit by two back-to-back -back Category 5 cyclones and two back-to-back -back coral bleaching events. All this after a five-year crown of thorn starfish outbreak that had already degraded many of the reefs. In some places, there were no corals left. The reef reduced to bare bedrock. Yet only one year later, signs of life are emerging, small polyps taking root, that suggest the reefs are rebounding. For her, there is no hope for corals unless we change course on greenhouse gas emissions. But she finds solace in knowing that if we're able to change our behavior, the reefs will heal and take care of themselves. 
Although she's nearing retirement, she hopes to stay on as director long enough to watch the reefs around the island recover. It's worth noting that my interviews with scientists and managers haven't just addressed their thoughts on hope and despair. There are many axes around which these conversations rotate. We've talked about all kinds of things, from professional goals to the nature of scientific objectivity, and from interagency politics to what legacy these professionals wish to leave behind. When I first got here, I expected every person I talked to to be a bleeding heart. I expected a lot more tears. But my expectations have routinely been contradicted. I've loved hearing these stories and have been excited to talk about them with friends and family. Recently, I was relaying my progress to my mom over one of our weekly Skype calls. I'd done more interviews than normal that week and was excited to tell her the good news. I was probably expecting some kind of florid praise, but in typical parental fashion, she skipped that and got right to the heart of things. Why do you feel this is important? She asked. Initially, I was annoyed. I was sure we'd talked about this before. But as I tried to come up with an answer, I realized that conjuring up a response was proving harder than it should have been. As I spoke, mom's face gradually assumed an expression of concern, never a good sign. Her squinted eyes and frowning mouth signified that my answer was incoherent, long-winded, or worst of all, unsatisfying. In my defense, I think it's easy to forget about the forest when you've been doing nothing but interviewing the trees. But that conversation with my mom along with a slightly antagonistic exchange with a professor who was uninterested in participating in my study, has given me cause to revisit why I feel what I'm doing is important, why I care about this. And there are a lot of things I could tell you. We could talk about how discussing the emotional lives of reef scientists might benefit concerned future members of the field. Or we could talk about objectivity, subjectivity, and how science works in practice. We might discuss the insight we gain from folks who are mourning the loss of natural spaces. Or I might take things in a more personal direction and tell you how cathartic it's felt for me to speak with people who care about coral reefs and listen to them talk about what motivates them to get out of bed every morning. These all ring true to me, but I've been drawn to a different angle lately. I attended a seminar the other day, hosted by Professor Jennifer Deeger of the Cairns Institute, on creating dialogues around climate change through art. In her talk, Professor Deeger suggested that one way of effectively telling terrible stories, particularly the terrible stories of climate change, is to tell them beautifully and innovatively. By introducing beauty and novelty into the way we discuss these issues, we re-engage listeners rather than pushing them away. I found Professor Deeger's idea really powerful. When framed politically and scientifically, climate change is both terrifying and seemingly intractable. People are moving too slowly to avert catastrophe, we hear, and the consequences will be devastating and all-encompassing, from ocean acidification to drought to hurricanes. It's overwhelmingly awful. As a result, many of us, including me, now make a habit of ignoring climate change-related articles and news reports altogether. Our apathy is a function of mental self-preservation. We know enough, we say implicitly, to avoid reading about whatever terrible new revelation appears in today's paper. And in many ways, even with new information, the story remains the same. It's scientists versus slow-moving governments and fossil fuel companies. It's people without the means to relocate or cope versus the impending disaster caused by well-resourced nations. It's capitalism run amok. It's Irma, Maria, and Haiyan. It's dead livestock and it's coral bleaching. And it's many other things all at once as well. 
Shutting down in the face of all of that is unsurprising, but it's also a problem because avoidance is unproductive for activism and it's unproductive for coping too. One of the things I've begun thinking about here in Australia is that climate change, in addition to being a political nightmare and an important scientific challenge, is as much about loss as anything else. It's about losing an understanding of the environments we live in. It's about losing places we once thought we knew. It's about living in a reality that grows rapidly more distant from the past as global temperatures climb to higher averages every year. For many, these losses will be profound. Communities living on coastlines and low-lying islands will lose the very land under their feet. They will be forced to leave by rising seas and it will be impossible for them to return. Places which they know, cherish, and have long-running connections with will effectively disappear. I should add that this is no longer some apocalyptic vision of the future. In the Torres Strait, Papua New Guinea, Miami, the Louisiana bayous, Kiribati, and in Staten Island, New York, the exodus has already begun in earnest. But climate change means loss for all of us, even if you're not losing the earth you stand on. The rhythm of the seasons will change. Natural spaces we appreciate may look radically different or disappear altogether. We may cease to hear the familiar calls of birds, frogs, and insects. Some, like me, will likely watch ecosystems they love disintegrate almost entirely. Whether we realize it or not, climate change will take things from everybody, and it will likely make the places we inhabit increasingly unfamiliar and strange. I believe telling the stories of reef scientists and managers is important because it represents one beautiful way into this terrible mess. But more importantly, hearing what these people have to say can be helpful for us to process our own unaddressed thoughts about the losses we have and will continue to experience. Their stories are about how we respond to watching places we care about disappear and how we grapple, in all types of ways, with the mix of powerlessness, uncertainty, fear, and hope we might feel as we look to a warmer future. At the very least, I think these testimonies are interesting and might re-engage you. But at best, we might learn how to better cope with an age of rapid change in which all of us are forced to part with the recognizable. <laughs>